Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. Downtown near VCU, there's a place to eat called Extreme Pizza, which I like to say like this, Extreme Pizza. So I got to thinking, what makes it extreme? Don't you wonder? Aren't you curious? No, Esther's not curious, but the rest of us are. Okay, so uh, she's like shaking her head, like, where is he going with this? So is this like pizza served to you while you're going down the slalom, right, at the Winter Olympics? Is that what makes it extreme? So I had to find out. So I went to their website, and this is what it says. Quote, This is the sort of pizza invented by people who sail from kites, who snowboarded before there were snowboards, who who learned to always color outside the lines. At Extreme Pizza, we're always experimenting with new ways to test the palate, to push the pizza experience to a higher level. And because we receive such raving support from our customers and food critics, we've made the sky our limit as to what we can create on our canvas crust. Whether you eat at Extreme, have a piping hot pie delivered to your doorstep, or try one of our take-and-bake pizzas that you cook at home, you'll need to gear up for an eating adventure. Are you ready to get Extreme I added the the sound effect. It doesn't have that on the website, obviously. So is this truly extreme pizza? What do you think? Who says yes? Okay, David, who says no, not extreme? Okay, not extreme pizza. All right, well, what what else could be extreme? How about about sermons? All right, you know what that sound means. It's time for some extreme preaching. For our first extreme, I'm going to quote briefly from Jonathan Edwards' sermon in what has been called the most famous American sermon. Do you know the title already? (laughs) Extreme pizza? No. No, the title of his sermon. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, raise your hand if you've, uh, if you've heard of this before. Yes, okay, very good, all right. So I think we even read it in, in public school. Uh, so it's entered into the, the popular culture among literary works. But I think, I think of it as a kind of an extreme to, to one side uh, sort of sermon. So I wanted to share uh, that with you. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Jonathan Edwards. This is from an article uh, in Christianity Today. In 1734, Edwards' preaching on justification by faith sparked a different sort of devotion. A revival, a spiritual revival, broke out in his parish. In December, there were six sudden conversions. By spring, there were about 30 a week. It was not due to theatrics, right? He wasn't up here going, pew, pew, pew. Okay. Uh, One observer wrote, he scarcely gestured or even moved, and he made no attempt by the elegance of his style or the beauty of his pictures to gratify the taste and fascinate the imagination. 
Instead, he convinced with overwhelming weight of argument and with such intenseness of feeling. Edwards kept a careful written account of his observations and noted them, and his most effective sermons were published, which were widely read in America and England. Uh, these works helped fuel the Great Awakening a few years later. This was 1739 to 1741. How many of you have heard of the, the Great Awakening? during which thousands were moved by the preaching of Britain's George Whitfield. Whitfield had read Edwards' books, book and made it a point to visit him when he came to America. Edwards invited Whitfield to preach at his church and reported, the congregation was extraordinarily melted, almost the whole assembly being in tears for a great part of the time. The whole assembly included Edwards himself. During the Great Awakening, Edwards contributed perhaps the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Unfortunately, it has since cast Edwards as an emotional and judgmental revivalist, when in fact he preached it as dispassionately as any of his other sermons. In spite of his dispassionate style, Edwards insisted that true religion is rooted in the affections, not in reason. He defended the emotional outbursts of the Great Awakening in, uh, in a treatise, uh, a masterpiece of psychological and spiritual discernment, and, uh, and, and other papers in which he also included an account of his wife's spiritual awakening. Uh, in a day when psalm singing was almost the only music to be heard in the congregational churches, Edwards encouraged the singing of new Christian hymns, unquote. So without further ado, here is some extreme preaching. Pew, pew, pew. You ready for it? This is an excerpt from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Let's see what we think. Quote, the wrath of God is like great waters that are stopped up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it, unquote. Wow. So we've heard some extreme preaching about God's judgment. How about on the other end of the spectrum, right? We could have some extreme preaching about God's grace and favor. And for this, I have chosen Pastor Joel Osteen. How many of you have heard of him? All right, so this is uh, kind of the other end of the spectrum. <clears throat> Quote, I want to talk to you today about expecting a favor-filled future. It's easy to lose our passion in life. When we've gone through disappointments, dreams are taking longer than we thought, or we're dealing with the challenge 
If we're not careful, we'll become complacent. And when we're not believing for things to turn around, we're not expecting good breaks. But Paul said in Romans 12, 12, be glad for all that God is planning for you. If you could see what God has planned for you, if you know the doors he's going to open, the people you're going to meet, the giants you're going to defeat, and you go out each day with a spring in your steps, excited about your future, expecting God to show out in your life, that expectancy is what allows God to do great things. That's your faith at work. You may be in a difficult time and thoughts whisper, it's never going to change. You've seen your best days already. Don't believe those lies. God has a comeback for every setback, a new beginning for every loss, mercy for every mistake. He's already planned to bring you out better, to promote you in front of those that did you wrong, to heal you despite that diagnosis. There are good breaks in your future that will catapult you ahead. When you realize this, it changes your perspective. You won't live discouraged over problems, thinking that a dream is too big and these people are too powerful. There'll be a passion and expectancy. You know God is on the throne. You know his plans for you are for good and that he's already lined up the right people, the breaks you need, the favor, unquote. So are these two preachers reading the same Bible? What do you think? Yes. Are they describing the same God? Yes. So how is this possible? Well, God is complex and can be described as both full of severity and full of grace and favor. And that's exactly what we see in this week's Parsha. We see both at work. Consider this requirement for the priests in the washing basin. Uh, and this is in Exodus 30, verse 21. They are to wash their hands and their feet so that they do not die. It is to be an eternal statute for them to him and his offspring throughout their generations. The penalty of the priests not following these directions, not washing, right, is death. So great is the holiness of their vocation. This is where the tradition of hand washing in Judaism uh, comes from, like uh, when we wash our hands on Shabbat. On the other hand, this enables them to minister in the tabernacle, which, which allows us to commune with God so that God may dwell among Israel. And that shows the grace and the favor of God. So we have both. How about this a few lines later in this week's Parsha, discussing the special uh, anointing oil, the, uh, the incense, the recipe of which can only be used for the temple. Whoever mixes any like it, whoever puts any of it on anyone unauthorized will be cut off from his people. Uh, that's from Exodus 30, verse 33. Seems kind of extreme, right? You make the, you make the, the oil or the incense and you're, you're cut off from your people. Uh, but, but the point is the, the holiness of it, the uniqueness of it. And that points to the holiness of God, the holiness of his sanctuary and the holiness of his people. In our lives, we have to do the same thing with our relationships. We have to balance between compassion and having good boundaries, right? Too much kindness. How many of you have us have gone there, right? Too much kindness. And what happens? You enable folks or they might, uh, they might take advantage of you or disrespect you, right? And then you could go to the other extreme, right? Too stern and too strong boundaries. What happens? 
then you're treating people too harshly and you might isolate them. So, you know, you have to have discernment about uh, how to walk that line. But the main event of this week's Parsha, the main thing that happens is the golden calf debacle. Whew, it's rough. Yes, I know. I, I, I'm making that face too. All right. Um, let's see how it plays out in Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, I don't see Moses. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, get up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Now, I feel for the Israelites. I really do. Because what's happening? They're getting anxious. I mean... Yes, God delivered us from slavery and brought us through the sea and gave us his Torah and gave us an instruction for the tabernacle so we could meet with the living God. And some of our elders sat and ate with and saw the glory of the God of Israel. But this Moses has been gone, you know, a few days. And um, what has God done for us this week? That's what I'm wondering, right? You know, and where is this Moses? Okay, it's sad, right? But I think we do the same thing. We forget the amazing things that God has done for us in the past. And we become impatient over the next thing that we're waiting for. And I think that's what Joel Osteen was, was pointing to. It's good to remind ourselves and our loved ones every so often what God has done for us, right? That's why we have the Baruch Hashem page, right? That's why we encourage one another so we can be thankful. So then this is how Aaron responds. So Aaron said to them, break off the golden rings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people broke off their golden earrings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received them from their hand and made a molten calf fashioned with a chiseling tool. Then they said, this is your God, Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Then Aaron made a proclamation saying, tomorrow will be a feast to Adonai. They rose up early the next morning, sacrificed burnt offerings and brought fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to make merry. So the people wanted a God that they could touch and see. And they haven't seen a miracle in a few days, right? So they're getting anxious. They wanted to know that God was with them still. And that delay, right, that desire caused anxiety. But how do they deal with that anxiety? They deal with it by making an idol. But we do the same thing, right? We soothe our anxieties in sometimes unhealthy ways. When we're anxious, do we automatically reach for some sort of replacement for God? I think sometimes we do. So uh, let's have a little bit of <laughs> compassion on the Israelites here and let's try to be patient instead and wait on the Lord, right? Like Pastor Osteen was saying. Now, let's take a pause for a moment and let's think about Aaron's actions. What do you think about him? What? It's fine? <laughs> what? He was funny? <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> That's an interesting take. Some see him as making a necessary compromise, right? Trying to just stall until uh, Moses gets back, right? So that we could see it that way. Others see him as making too much of a compromise, because he's, you know, he could be leading the people astray. I think it's especially interesting. Verse five, he says, tomorrow will be a feast, right? Tomorrow will be an appointed time. He's just making it up, right? You know, <laughs> out of all the times that God gave them, right? You know, Yom Kippur. And uh, we've seen that uh, uh, Israel can create a sense of an appointed time, right? Like with Purim or Hanukkah, but this is not that. This is not celebrating something that God has done. So it strikes me as as very unkosher, right? An unauthorized festival related to this golden calf. Remember the holiness that we just read, the holiness of the tabernacle, the holiness, the seriousness of the washing, right? And the incense a few verses earlier. In contrast, what is he doing? This is the first time that someone would say, holy cow, right? You know, it, this, it's not kosher. It's probably the origin of the expression. I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to do some research, but he's, he's essentially making a mockery of holiness. And that strikes me as a bad choice. And, um, but perhaps he's just trying to appease the people so they don't do anything worse. So there's different ways to, to look at what Aaron is doing. Um, but at any rate, here's the scene up on the mountain. Then Adonai said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have become debased. They quickly turned aside from the path that I commanded for them. They have made a molten calf, worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Who was talking there? Was it God or Moses? It was the Lord. Do you notice what he says to Moses? Your people. <laughs> Because before this, remember, it's always been my people. It's interesting, right? It's kind of like when one parent says to the other, you know, your daughter got in trouble at school today, or I think your son needs to have his diaper changed, right? These are hypothetical, of course, you know, I'm not, not, no real, no real examples. Um, but this, what does it show us? It shows us the distance between uh, the people and God because of why? Because of their sins. So now it's your people, right? And it's a real, there's a real chasm that's created. There's a real divide that happens when we violate God's covenant and we turn away from him. So if we keep reading, we see both things going on. We see the harshness of God and we see the grace of God. There's uh, amazing favor and grace, but there's also the reality of sin. God declares that he will send his judgment on Israel and he's going to wipe them all out because of this. But what happens? Moses intercedes and prevents that ultimate disaster. But there's still some death. There's still some destruction. And uh, and then Moses has to call the people to account. He has to call Aaron to account, right? And, Aaron's, and Aaron goes like, well, I don't know what happened. I... Uh, I guess, um, you know, I, I started, I took all the gold and out popped this calf. That's what he says. <laughs> He's like, it just came out that way. Right. But if you read a few verses earlier, it's like he, you know, he chiseled it. Right. It's not a, I don't know. I don't know what, what but he was just trying to, to, you know, maneuver his way, finagle his way, kind of like Jacob. But the amazing thing throughout all of this that I think is that with Aaron, you know, we've, we've, we've found some things that he did 
to fall short here. There's never any harsh judgment on him from God. And he remains in his post. He's still the high priest. Why is that? Well, God's calling and gifts are irrevocable. They can't be taken back. And even though Aaron made mistakes and King David made mistakes and Moses made mistakes, it doesn't take away from who God called them to be because we are not our mistakes. We are who God says that we are. This is where the grace of God triumphs over judgment in the area of our calling and the area of our identity in Messiah. This is where the grace of God triumphs over his judgment in the area of our calling in the area of our identity in Messiah. In the Parsha, we see that God is not a pushover, but neither is he exceedingly harsh. Both Jonathan Edwards and Joel Osteen are right about God, and both occasionally are a little bit too extreme. Most stories in the Bible straddle these two extremes, and they show the severity and the kindness of God, and this week's Parsha is no exception. So how do we straddle the divide in our lives? Well, there's a proverb that puts it like this. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, he gives grace to the humble. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. First John 1 verses 8 through 9 encourages like this. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. That's pride. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's humility. We see when we read the Gospels how Yeshua opposes the proud. Sometimes with the Pharisees, he might use harsh language. Have you ever noticed that? Why is that? Well, they had religious pride. But then he uses gentle language with the lowly and humble. So how can we experience more of the kindness of God and avoid the judgment of God? We humble ourselves. We humble ourselves, we confess our sins, and we turn to Yeshua. Edward's view of God, his, his sermon was to wake up his congregation to the need for forgiveness and the rescuing of Yeshua. And that without his grace, we're doomed which is true. And Osteen's view of God was to encourage his congregation to humbly seek the favor of God and to be patient and to not make the same mistakes that Israel made waiting for Moses on that mountain, which is also true. So I want to encourage all of us to humble ourselves and to trust and wait on God. He is severe to those who oppose him like Pharaoh, but for us who seek him and bow down, he is kind and forgiving and can cleanse us from all our past sins. Amen? All right. Avinu, our Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that um, you, are, uh, you are at times severe and you oppose the proud, but you are also incredibly kind. And we remember in this week's partial also that uh, there's the first description of you that says you are slow to anger, 
abounding in love and faithful to a thousand generations to those that revere you, O God. And it also mentions your severity to those that oppose you to a, a few generations. But we know that your mercy, a thousand generations, is much greater than a few generations because your kindness overcomes your judgment, O God. And we see that consistently in the scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, even in our uh, in our mistakes, Lord, you still affirm us and, and clean us up, Lord, and encourage us and that our calling is irrevocable and that uh, we in you, we can um, do everything that you've called us to do by your grace and your mercy and your favor. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.